Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we're going to be continuing in Leviticus 23 tonight, so you can click on your Bibles, uh, or if you're old-fashioned like my wife, you can turn the page in the Bible, and you can go to Leviticus 23. Um, we will be entering the final section of the book of Leviticus, and we already kind of started last week on the feasts, but we didn't finish the chapter um, because their feasts are so cool. And so we started with... Um, the Sabbath as the first and foremost, it's the simplest of the annual things that God wants his people doing. It's in the home, it's with the family, uh, it's a Sabbath, a solemn rest that you're supposed to take. And then we covered the first four feasts, which were the spring feasts, the ones you do at this time of year. Uh, the first one was Passover, um, which is also called Pesach. Um, and God accepts the lamb that covers and protects his people from death. Um, and then the second one was the appointment or the, the feast of unleavened bread, uh, which is to celebrate a God getting the people out of Egypt. And as they do it each year, they're supposed to get the Egypt out of them. So you find and seek out the leaven and you get rid of it. The third feast we covered was the feast of first fruits, which happens at the first harvest, the barley harvest. And those crops are waved to the Lord. And there's a promise that God will give abundance in, in the crops. So in Jesus' year, that landed on the 17th of Nisan. Um, and this was Steph's favorite point of the whole thing last week, that on the 17th of Nisan, that's when Noah landed on land for a new era of God's provision for his people. It's when the uh, Hebrews set foot on the other side of the Red Sea, which was a new era for God's provision for his people. Uh, it's when Joshua... Um, started in the promised land and it's the day the manna stopped because there was a new era for God's provision for his people. It's the time when it's the same day that Esther went into the king to appeal for the, the Israelites because it's a new era of God's provision for his people. And it's the same day uh, that Jesus um, uh, is able to start a new era of provision for his people. So it, it marks the beginning of all these eras. Uh, the fourth of the feasts that we did last week was the Feast of Weeks. Um, and this is another thing Seth said, make sure you give the multiple names so people don't get confused. The Feast of Weeks is also called Savout, and it's also called Pentecost. So it's all that's all the same feast in various languages, uh, Hebrew and Greek and whatnot. And it's the day that God gave his law to the people. And in Leviticus, this is the law that he gave to the people. These are the rules that he gave to them. In the New Testament, Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks was the, the same exact day that the Holy Spirit came on the church um, as God provides the law to our hearts and the Holy Spirit becomes a conscience for God's people and it starts a, a new era of the New Testament or, or the covenant of Christ. Uh, so this marks the primary growing season and as there's harvest coming in at all, all of these seasons, 
it marks the first fruits from the barley harvest to the last of the harvest, which is the wheat harvest, which would be the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. There's months of work to do in between those when this harvest comes in and the fields, which are already white, needs workers to get out into the harvest. Um, so I'm going to pause for just one second. Danny remembers it all. So there are the, those are the spring, the spring feasts. The autumn feasts are what we're doing tonight. And this is the final harvest. So after there's this four month period between the spring and the fall, um, God's people are supposed to be out harvesting. They're working. Um, and at the end of that comes this feast of trumpets, which announces the final harvest of the season. Uh, it is also called Rosh Hashanah. So I'll use those interchangeably, the feast of trumpets and Rosh Hashanah. This, the, the next feast for the autumn feast, there's three of them. The Day of Atonement is also called in the Hebrew Yom Kippur. Uh, and then the Feast of Booths, which is also called Sukkoth, or it's called Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, all of which are the three feasts of the Autumn Feast. So let's dig into them. The Spring Feasts, um, we looked at through a lens of the New Testament, which is Paul and the disciples use all of those Spring Feasts to explain that this is Jesus' first coming. So this is when we, um, the feasts all represented something important about Jesus' first coming. And likewise, for the autumn feasts, they say that these feasts represent something very important about Jesus' second coming. And the gap in between them is the gap between Jesus' first and second coming. So the Feast of Trumpets is where we start. Rosh Hashanah, the end of harvest, and we'll pick up right there in verse 23. So Leviticus 23, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh, the, the month of Tishri, uh, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. Remember the word convocation meant a meeting time, a holy meeting time. And you shall do no customary work on it, and you shall, off, shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So the seventh month is the Sabbath month. It's on the month of seven, so it's the perfected month. It's the completed month. It's when everything's been finished. And it's the month of fulfillment. And so having the feast be the first day of this month is significant. The whole land then gets filled, and everywhere you go in Israel, every town you're in, what you hear all day is trumpets. The entire nation is blowing trumpets on this day, and that's what marks the day. It's kind of like, uh, you know, if the Vikings won the Super Bowl, you'd drive around the Twin Cities and all over the place you'd hear shouting and cheering and, and whatnot. So there's this unmistakable, unavoidable sound of trumpets if you're anywhere in God's land with God's people. Um, so this, this trumpet blares out all types of trumpets. It doesn't have a particular kind. Um, I also thought this would be a lot, a lot like when we run our tornado sirens and that there's just this appointed time every month when we run these sirens to make sure they keep working. But the trumpets that get used would have been the trumpets they use in battle. So the priests would have these massive, mighty trumpets that they had, and these trumpets would get used by the king in times of battle. They were ancient forms of communication before they had walkie-talkies. So they would just trumpet out all their text messages with Morse code or something. 
So in Joshua 6.20, uh, here's an example of what that looks like. So the people shouted when the priests drew, blew the trumpets. And it happened when the people heard the sound of the trumpet and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat. So this is part of, and it's probably the exact same trumpets that they're using in the tabernacle that Joshua would have been using to march around the walls of Jericho. And on that seventh day, the seventh month of the, for the holiday, the seventh day of marching for Joshua, the trumpets blow, the people shout, rah, and all the walls come falling down. God wins on this feast of trumpets, and it's a celebration of his winning. Gideon used the trumpets to scare the Abrazites in Judges 6 and 7, and the, and the sword of the Lord is what they call these trumpets. These are This is the judgment of God on people that have been rebelling against God. They get blown whenever the ark gets moved, 2 Samuel 6, 15. And then Nehemiah, when he's building the wall with Ezra, and they're, they've returned to Jerusalem after exile in Babylon, they, each person that was working on the wall got a sword on one side and a trumpet on the other. So anytime something happened, Nehemiah 4.20, whenever you hear the sound of the trumpet, you rally to that trumpet and our God will fight for us. So Nehemiah used the trumpets as a tool for them to communicate as they worked on the wall. So as the workers of God are doing their work, they each have a trumpet and they're ready to, to blare it out. And then everybody comes running to the sound of the trumpet. God's people should listen for the trumpet and run to the trumpet when they hear it. And they should shout with celebration when they hear it because this is God doing his fighting for us, right? And again, on this holiday, they're not supposed to do any work. And Nehemiah, our God, will fight for us. That's what the trumpets mean. It means God's doing his thing, and it's time to come see that. The trumpet also assembles God's people. And I can't avoid the Avengers assemble reference on this. But when the trumpets blow, the Avengers of God assemble, and they come together. So for God's people, there's a proclamation for battle to start or for battle to stop. So 2 Samuel 18.6 is when they stopped the battle when they heard the trumpets. So the trumpets act in both directions. It's God's direction to his people when the trumpets blow. Or the trumpets were a warning in, in, in uh, Ezra 33.3. Or the, there's a warning that the battle might be coming towards the city, Jericho 4.5. So when the trumpets blow, people know what they sound like, and they probably have different um, measures or meters which which they blow the trumpet and they do different things. Jeremiah 4, 5, blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go to the fortified cities. There's something that stirs in our soul when the trumpets blow. And frankly, I think that's the shadow of what we get when we hear Avengers assemble and things like that. The idea that the people, the good guys would come together and team up and go to battle together. There's something that stirs our souls because that's how God made us. He made our souls to get excited when we hear these trumpets. So when you hear a trumpet, you're supposed to look the direction of the trumpet and you're supposed to run to it like you look for God's banner and you run to it, Jeremiah 51, 27. So there's the trumpets. So Nehemiah uses these trumpets in one other way and I want to kind of share this one too. This is great. Nehemiah, they finish the walls and they assemble everyone together and that the whole nation has come together and they read the law which would have been Leviticus. So they read this book to everybody, and then he announces this is a holiday we're supposed to celebrate, and this is the day we're supposed to do it on. So he finishes reading the law on this day, and then he blesses the people to the sound of trumpets, 
in the seventh month on the first day. And Nehemiah says to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Don't sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Hallelujah. And this is when you've had a good harvest, you come together and you celebrate. So there's, uh, it's interesting when Nehemiah says that, what I just read, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whose nothing is prepared, for this is the holy day to our Lord. Do not sorrow for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There is seven prepositional phrases, one for each of the seven trumpets, perhaps. So you would have read each phrase and trumpets would have blown. And each phrase and trumpets one of the vaunt. And the last one would have been the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that's when the people would cheer and shout. And it is likely the same trumpets that would have gotten blown for a lot of these things prior to Babylonian exile. And then they would have maybe had to remake them after Babylonian exile. Unless did the king give them all their stuff back in Babylon? Did they get these trumpets back or would they have? We'll look that up. Um, so when God speaks, apparently he sounds like a trumpet. And we see lots of evidence of this. Exodus 20, 18, and all the way to Revelation 1, 10, when God speaks, the whole world can hear it. And Isaiah 18, 3 says this really well. All the inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts, lifts up a banner on the mountains, you see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you hear it. So when God's going to speak to the world, he does it with these trumpets. And when you hear him speak from the mountains of Mount Sinai, you hear these kinds of things. So each day, the, the, the ancient Jews would blow their trumpets all together on day one, unified together in the seventh month of completion and perfection. Kind of cool. So what do Christians think when they see the Feast of Trumpets? What does this mean to Christians? If this has to do with Jesus' second coming, then they probably wrote about this when they wrote about Jesus' second coming. And sure enough, they do. And it's all over in there. And you, it sheds new light on the New Testament when you understand what they're talking about. When they mention trumpets, they're talking about this holiday and they're talking about this time. So when Jesus comes again, there's going to be trumpets that signal to the entire planet that there's a battle that's about to begin. So for some, it's combat. And for other people, the trumpets will mean that there's a shelter for God's people. And we should run to God when we see that. A great proclamation of what the Lord is doing and is to come. The Lord will come, Isaiah 27, 13. So it shall be in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And Jesus himself said it in Matthew 24, 31. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the end of heaven to the other. Assemble Christians, come together, gather the battle of the final battles about to begin. You can almost hear the theme music from uh, um, Narnia start coming in. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. That's not Donald Trump. That's a trumpet. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then which we are alive shall remain and be... Uh, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall be ever with the Lord. That's also in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4. It's all over the place. When God comes, we'll hear trumpets. And his people, his elect, will be gathered together with him together. Some people call that a rapture. Uh, some people just call it Christians assemble. Maybe that's a thing. So 
there's no real reason to think that that Jesus will return. It says we'll never know when he'll return. He'll come like a thief in the night. No one will know the day nor the hour. But there's no reason to think he won't come back on the day of trumpets, just like he did with the first four feasts, right? So this feast is something where whenever Rosh Hashanah comes around, even Christians to this day kind of like perk up their ears because there's an expectation that there should be this loud music of trumpets that happens on that day. And there are still a number of Christian denominations that actually celebrate the, celebrate the Feast of Trumpets. They don't often call it Rosh Hashanah because that's a Jewish or a Hebrew word. They usually just call it in English the Feast of Trumpets, uh, and they celebrate it. I get excited because I think this is really kind of cool, and it would be neat if God came back on that day, but we don't know, and I don't want to get into the whole trying to predict what day God will return. Let's get to the next feast. Verse 26, this is Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Also, the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. So Yom Kippur is ten days or nine days after the Feast of Trumpets on day ten. And it shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the Day of Atonement, to make atonement for you, before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does no work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work, and it shall be a statue forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath, a solemn rest, or literally in the Hebrew, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Like, don't mess with this one. It's a solemn rest, solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls. And on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath, your solemn rest. So this describes the priest's job on this in this day in Leviticus 17. They actually give the sacrifice of atonement, the burnt offering for the nation on this day. In Leviticus 16, we already talked about what the priest is supposed to do. This passage is about what the people are supposed to do on this day. So the first day is the trumpets, and on the tenth day, the ninth and the tenth day, it is for atonement. They should set aside this kind of um, season to do nothing. Notice the emphasis here is to afflict your soul and do no work, and we see those both two times. The only role for humans is to be soberly aware of that you're falling short in the face of God, to afflict your soul is to make a choice to remember and to confess and to humble ourselves before God. Literally, to afflict your soul is to bow down or make yourself lower than God. People often have a way of elevating themselves to even a level of equality with God. When we pray to Him, we pray because we want things. And on this day, we don't do that. We afflict our souls, we lower our soul and say, we are really in debt to God. And we need his atonement. And the morning then, the afflicting is over our own sin. We stop, we look at what we've done, we look at how we've fallen short, and it's okay to remember that for one day a year, which means the rest of the year you're supposed to move on. But for one day of the year, you just think of all the things you've done that need atonement that God's going to forgive you for it. And I think in Christian tradition, we don't do this very much. Um, we either run rampant with guilt in some denominations or we forget about humbling ourselves altogether in other denominations, but there's a balance here. As with a lot of things with God, it's a balance. 
And finding a way to just take one day a year to recognize we need atonement is to take it very seriously, solemnly, and to rest in that. As with the previous feasts, God is going to do all the work. So even though we are afflicted, God's going to bring atonement and he'll do everything. Humans are to do no work on that day. There's nothing humans can do. So judgment day is how Christians see this. When Jesus comes a second time, the trumpets will blow. And then in a short time later, there's going to be a judgment. And that should be an affliction for people. We should be a little worried about if, if, if that judgment is going to fall on us or if Christ's blood is going to cover us and God will pass right over. We should have assurance in our salvation that God's going to cover us. But for one day a year, take some time and, and refresh your vows to God your, so that that atonement is covering you. So having fallen short of the glory of God, um, John re recalls or remembers this. I didn't put the reference on this one. Um, and this is in Revelation. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who's worthy to open the book and to lose the seals thereof, to loose the seals thereof. And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book and neither to look thereon. So when we're talking about this moment in Revelation, there's this affliction, this, there's nobody on this planet worthy of doing what needs to be done. No one's worthy to judge. No one in heaven or earth or under the earth is able to open the book of God. And in that sense, there should be this sober recognition that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and we should be afflicted by that. We as humanity have fallen short. And John wept much in, in verse 4. Again, sorry, sorry, I don't have the reference for stuff. Revelation 5, verse 4, because my wife's an amazing Bible scholar. And John says, I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book. He was afflicted. Neither to look thereon. Nobody was even worthy to look at the book. And one of the elders says to me, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and loose the seven seals thereon. So don't do any work. God's going to do it all. And anyone who tries to atone for themselves is going to get cast out of the kingdom. So we see that in Leviticus. Anybody who thinks that they're not going to take this seriously as a day, you're going to be cast out. So the affliction of our soul is the humility to come before God and instead of weeping, the end of the day of the atonement is a great celebration because God has atoned for our sins. And in that sense, you should probably blow the trumpets again. Um, but Paul continues to keep this day of atonement even after he has converted to Christianity. Acts 27, 9, it shows that the day hasn't come yet in Paul's belief. So the earliest of disciples believes that the day of atonement has yet to come. And it's still coming. So he continues to practice that as a feast. Uh, and there are Christian denominations that keep uh, this date too. Verse 33, we'll go to the third of the autumn feasts. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, the 15th day of the seventh month shall be the feast of tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. And on the first day, there shall be a holy convocation, a holy meeting. You're going to all get together. And you shall do no customary work on it because people aren't going to be part of this final part. 
For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, and on the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It's the sacred assembly, and you don't do any work on it. So here we see this emphasized again multiple times. You're going to gather together, and you don't get to do any work. So the only thing that believers are supposed to do with the Day of Atonement, they're supposed to afflict their souls with the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, you're going to get together and be families and be tribes and to be cities and to gather and do this together. And this is a really cool holiday. Um, so seventh month is a big deal for them. You got the Day of Trumpets on day one, the Day of Atonement on day 10, and on day 15 is this week-long Day of Festival of Booths um, or Succoth. And the tents remind them that when they were saved from death in Egypt, they all had to go camping in the wilderness for a while. So as a celebration of this wilderness journey that they're about to take, where God saved them and provided for them with the manna and everything else, God gives them a tabernacle that they can dwell in. And he creates a home for these people. And before they had cities, before they had massive mansions, before they had palaces, they had tents. And that was enough, and it was sufficient to be in a relationship with God where all you have is his tabernacle right in the middle of all your tabernacles. And these tents are what they go and live in. So even after they're a big, rich, and famous um, uh, Jewish nation, and Solomon's reigning over them, for one week a year, they all leave their houses and they camp together. So this is a giant camp out, and they're going to keep having a camp out. So this is kind of perfect. You got trumpets that start the month. You think about what you need for salvation, and then you go and you go camping with your family um, after uh, this all happens. So in a millennial age, this happens. Can you um, mute the frogs? Zechariah 14, 6, 6, 16 through 19. It shall come to pass that everyone that is left in all the nations which come against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king the Lord of hosts, and they keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So Zechariah predicts that after the Messiah comes, there's going to be this time when people from all over the world come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together. One giant camping trip. And again, there's an indication that this feast is going to be kept after Jesus' second coming, or after his first coming, in Acts 18. Paul has this pilgrimage, and when they desired him to, longer to tarry with them, he consented not to, but he bade them farewell, saying, I have to keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I'll return again to you if God wills it. So Paul leaves his ministry, his, his, his missionary journeys, to go back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles with his family, with his friends, with his old teacher, and he's going to go live in tents. So what these mean, the, the trumpets, the atonement, and the tabernacles, we can only guess at what those mean in the second coming. But if they're anything like the spring ones and the way in which they perfectly matched up with Jesus' first coming, I think each of these festivals, the more you are aware of them, the more you practice them, the more you celebrate them, the more they're going to be a perfect fit when Jesus comes again. And we're going to see how this entire narrative of history has been woven together. And it's part of what gets me excited about the faith. If these three feasts are anything like the first four, we really have something to look forward to as believers. And we're watching God write a story. And we get to be part of that and interested into it. Also, for our numbers people, there's four feasts and there's three feasts. And when you put them together, you have seven feasts. 
Um, so just another kind of piece where God keeps and continues to use uh, these numbers to speak to his people. Leviticus uh, verse 37, we'll go back to our passage. These are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offering, everything on its day. You're going to keep all this, Israel, and you're going to do it all the way that God said to do it. So they're going to do it for a couple thousand years. They're going to have this annual repeating of these seven feasts. And they're going to be specifically doing them so that when the prophecies come true, there's an entire nation of people that know the feasts and understand them as prophetic. Um, so they should recognize and listen to Jesus when, they, when he shows up and makes these connections. Verse 38, beside the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, besides all your vows, besides all your free will offerings, which you are to give to the Lord. So you keep these feasts beside all the offering stuff, the, the offerings at the very beginning of Leviticus chapters one through five. You're going to do those and you're going to do these feasts. Verse 39, also on the 50th day of this, on the 15th day of the seventh month, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, when you've gathered the fruit of your land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days on the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. And on the eighth day, there shall be a Sabbath rest. They're kind of repeating that idea. It begins and it ends in the rest of humanity. So humanity gets to rest and celebrate and enjoy. God's the beginning. He's the end. He's the first. He's the last. We rest in God in verse 34. We rest in God in verse 39. So it's about a great and solemn rest where we can be assured of and trust that the God of the universe will gather his people unto himself. Verse 40, you shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows by the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. So you're going to grab some branches and you're going to wave them around and you're going to sing some songs. Luckily, David wrote some songs. Um, and prior to David, there were probably really badly written songs. Um, so they had, you know, I don't know. I won't go down that. But in my head, there's humor there. Um, at the end of the day, you're going to have a party. You're going to eat some great food from the trees. The tree fruit comes in at the very end of the season. And it's interesting that they get to eat of the trees because God's letting them do it. And if you compare this to Adam and Eve, and they could eat of anything they wanted to, but there's one tree they couldn't. At this point, God says, I want you to eat from the beautiful trees. Now that I'm with you, now that I reside with you, now that the sacrifices are done, now that you're living and eating kosher and you're uh, in fellowship with me and we have these feasts, these convocations together, now you can eat from the beautiful tree. And you're going to celebrate and wave branches. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations and you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. It's kind of interesting and it's kind of beautiful. When Jesus returns um, to Jerusalem, uh, they were waving these palm branches around and they were celebrating it. And then part of that is, is they were doing it at the wrong time of the year, but they were celebrating and it came to be in Jewish tradition and culture that they would get these branches and wave them around whenever they were going to celebrate, not just on this feast. And they would use those branches as just a way to say we're celebrating. A lot like in America, we do ticker tape. In New York, they'll throw the stuff out the windows and there'll be confetti everywhere. And it's just what we do when we celebrate. We throw things and make a giant mess. 
Um, and the same was true with the Jews. When they celebrate, they grab branches and they wave them around and sing songs. So we do see evidence of Christians keeping this, this, these feasts uh, well into the second century. Uh, Catholic scholars saw that they were keep, Christians were keeping uh, this particular feast, this, this feast of, of weeks or feast of tabernacles. Uh, Jean Danelou kind of recorded that even into the fourth century before the feasts were called heretical by Catholics. Uh, they were kept. Um, the reason the Catholics called the feasts heretical is they looked too much like Jewish tradition and it gave the Christians and the Jews common points at which they could gather around these feasts and idea. But it does look like for 400 years, Christians celebrated these three feasts um, and they gathered them. Well into the 1800s, there were even still some cities in the Ukraine and in Eastern Europe that would celebrate all these feasts right alongside the Jewish people. Some people then see that as these things were wiped out of Christianity by the 1800s, that one of the things Lincoln did to revitalize a Thanksgiving or a period of celebration in the autumn or the fall is Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln instituted Thanksgiving. And he did it by a presidential executive order and said, because, and again, this guy grew up reading the Bible. He said, we as a nation need to do something in the autumn besides Halloween. So there has to be a celebration where we're just thankful for what we've been given. Um, and, and of course, Thanksgiving is a more positive spin on being afflicted. You're going to be thankful. It's not that you're afflicted. Um, but so, you know, as always, we've spun things to the positive side, which is good. Uh, so they make a pseudo Jewish, but not Jewish holiday in the United States of America called Thanksgiving. Um, Southern Baptists in the U.S., started formally celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles again, and they would get in a tent, and they would gather together as a people inside a big tent, and they would have celebrations where they'd bring in music and speakers. And this, in the 1800s and the early 1900s, became what we call the Big Tent Revival Movement. So the Baptists, the core of what was kind of unique culturally about that movement was that they started to get together in tents again and they met and they did it because of this particular feast and the evangelists that would go around um, were started to get kind of names for themselves because it created a, a unique oratorical style of which Billy Graham rose out of that um, and it would have all started by them reading the book of Leviticus. Seven days in the year they're going to celebrate this there's seven, Sabbath is on the seventh day. There's seven, seven days for the Feast of Booths. So in this passage alone, we have seven, 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 which is the number of God. Any wonder the Hebrews started to see significance in all these numbers? If you read Leviticus, they mattered and they were a way in which God would speak to them. So verse 42, with gravity and significance, we hold these feasts, right? So verse 42 says, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in the booths, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So Moses declared to the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. So these booths were what they gathered in. And Succoth, of course, as a holiday, seems to have been celebrated before Leviticus, before Moses, which is kind of interesting. Genesis 33, 17, as Jacob journeyed to Succoth, he built himself a house and he made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is still called Succoth. So it wasn't like a holiday with Jacob, but they actually used the names and they used these pieces. So when the Hebrews are brought out from Egypt, they made booths just like Jacob did, and they lived in them. That's kind of awesome. 
And I think for a family, think of this from a family perspective. Imagine as mom and dad, you say, oh, here we are, it's Thanksgiving, the weather's cooling off, the leaves are falling, kids, we're going to go camping for seven days together. And think every year growing up, this would have been, at least for me as a kid, this would have been one of my favorite holidays. That's seven days with my mom and dad learning how to do things and hanging out. And on the first day and the seventh day, we're going to rest and hang out and do nothing. But in between, we're just going to live in tents and go fishing and maybe hunting and do some other things. That had to be something that really brought families close together, especially hardworking Jewish families. So the feasts were official days off. They were breaks. These are things they wouldn't have gotten in Egypt. Egypt didn't give them holidays. So they make their pilgrimages to the temple or the tabernacle three times a year, unleavened bread, weeks, and tabernacles, and they meet together with a whole assembly of Israel. So it's like a, it's amazing. It's bigger than the Minnesota State Fair. They would have gathered. They would have hung out. They would have lived in camps all around the city, and they would have stayed there. The disciples during this, this season, one of these seasons they had to come in, they stayed out on the Mount of Olives, which is outside the city. And they would have, the city would have just been overwhelmed with people when these festivals happened. But that's the point. We're going to gather together. We're going to celebrate the law. We're going to celebrate that God's taking care of us. And we're going to do that. So once a year, you get a one-week retreat with your family, your friends. You get to meet people from other Jewish tribes because uh, they lived in geographically different areas. Uh, there would be romantic Jewish love in the air as you're meeting girls and guys from other tribes and you could connect with them and you'd see them year after year as you grew up. So it's a lot like a Bible camp every, every autumn that comes together because literally they get together, they sing songs and they read the Bible together. So it's Bible camp um, with your friends, your family and everybody else. To get a little glimpse inside that, just think of the joy that these people would have had. This would have been an amazing celebration. I think it sounds cooler than Christmas, to be honest. This sounds like a lot of fun. The camping part, I'd pass on that, but my wife would love that I camped with her. So as they return from Babylon, I'm, I, you can tell I've been in Nehemiah. They go out to the mountain and they bring olive branches and the branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, and they make their booths with the branches, as it's written. And then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly, the whole nation of Israel, of those who had returned to Jerusalem from the captivity made booths and they sat under their booths for since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until the day that children of Israel had not done so. And there was a very great gladness. Also day by day from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God and he kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. So when the people of God do this feast, there's a great gladness in the land. This isn't like a burden. This isn't like a, a rule that would be hard to keep. This is the fun part. What's amazing is that Israel fell away from these feasts. We've fallen away from these feasts. We don't do them anymore. But they have a, a wonderful prescriptive quality of joy where God weaves into his people this time together, this celebration together, this time when you put your work to the side and you love the people you live with and you go camping with them. And if you were a kid and you lived anywhere near trees and if you've ever built a fort with tree branches, this is fun. 
And it's wonderful. And to think your parents are going to go sleep in your tent with you and you're going to have like a big camp out, this would be pretty awesome. So if you've never built a, a, a fort in the woods with tree branches, you should do that. It's a good thing to do. In fact, build it for one week and see how awesome your tent will be. There's good evidence that each of these feasts for the, uh, uh, have some significance. The first four clearly matched with, and Jesus, the disciples, and Paul all took the first four feasts and said these represent Jesus' first coming. These last three, I think we're going to see after the second coming that they all represent Jesus' second coming in some powerful ways. So maybe we will get to go camping. Maybe there will be great joy. Maybe there will be actual trumpets that the entire world can hear. That this second coming of Jesus will be a celebration for his people and will be a time of great affliction for people that don't follow the Lord. And we'll see that those things all kind of weave together. And it's kind of exciting to see that. And we see it all the way back in Leviticus, thousands of years ago, that we have these promises from God that are going to be held true. I want to keep rolling with Leviticus 24. Um, so we're going to just fit that in tonight. And God continues to kind of wrap up the book of Leviticus. And there are roles for the people. So the people are going to do the feasts. The people are also going to help the priests with caring for parts of the, the tabernacle and the, the, the peace. So then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel. So he's not talking to the priests right now. He's talking to the whole nation that they bring to the to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting. Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually, and it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually, continually in your generations. So while we have this Mosaic law, you're going to keep this lamp burning. So the solid gold lampstands are the only source of light from inside the tabernacle. If you remember when we went through the tabernacle, there's two rooms inside the tabernacle. There's the Holy of Holies, and then there's the, the, the tent of meeting. The part between the tent of meeting and the Holy of Holies is, and then outside the tent is the altar of atonement or the bronze altar. So here's where the people are. Here's where God is. Here's this space that they meet in. And in that space, if you remember, there was a table of fellowship with bread on it. And there was a lampstand of gold with the light on it that would be representing this space. And there was an altar of incense where people could pray. So between God and the people, there's a spot where there's fellowship. There's the light of the Holy Spirit, and there's an incense altar where we can pray, and those prayers make their way through the veil to God. In that space, the people have to participate. This is kind of an interesting thing at the end. The children of Israel, the people, have to participate in helping to make this all happen. So the priests don't go out and get the oil to keep this thing lit. The people do that work. So here we see it's not a day of rest. It's a day of work. The people are going to do some things that are participatory in the relationship with God. And interestingly, because it's inside this tent of tabernacles, the people of God never really get to see this light. So they have to do the work out in the world without seeing the light all the time. I like to think that whenever the priests went in there, there would be people watching to see the light inside the tabernacle. But traditionally, that door was mostly shut, and they would have had to, on faith, provide things to make that happen. So you'd have people that would have to grow the olive trees, prune the olive trees. They'd have to pick and harvest the olives. They'd have to press the olives, 
purify them because you had to go through and clean out all the stuff from that oil. And then they had people that would make the wicks and weave the wicks and pull them, uh, grow and, and raise whatever needed to be made to make those. And then they had to transport hundreds of barrels of oil to keep lamps lit. And this is a huge lamp that they had to keep lit inside the tabernacle. This is all work that the people of Israel would have to do that had no profit financially to it. It was just the work of faith. And Aaron is in charge of it. So once they drop it off with Aaron, that's when the priests take over and they are supposed to care for those lamps, which we saw earlier in Leviticus. So people give parts of their life to make this work happen and God gives it back to the priests and God provides a law, health, justice, and then the people do feasts and now there's the light that's going to be there. So there's a light that shines inside God's presence. And it's, a, and it's the light that points the direction to God. So those that would come to the altar might see it as that door opened a little bit. And the instructions to go to the light would come after. Oh, instructions to this light come after God's people have been living under God's law. So it's important that this instruction comes at the end of Leviticus. Because this work that they do to serve God is after they've done their sacrifices, after they've been living a holy lifestyle, after they've celebrated and enjoyed the fruits of that relationship with God. Now they're doing this work and it's done out of a spirit of love and compassion. So the benefits of being a servant or a citizen of God's kingdom is already underway when they start harvesting this oil as they get into the Holy Land. The work then is part of what we do. I think it's interesting that John uh, eleven nine has Jesus answering his disciples um, about this light, this light of the world. And he says, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not because he's seen the light of the world. So the, the world is light for 12 hours and in that time we don't stumble. And if that light stays lit, then we don't stumble. And there's this image where they're supposed to keep this thing lit continually um, from evening until morning before the Lord. So the light stays lit at night to guide people or show people a path to the Lord. There's a key word here is that it continually happens. In fact, the end of verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, we keep seeing this word continually. And God marks it three times is that there is a light that is belongs to God and it never goes out and it always stays lit at night. So when the sun goes down, God's light comes up. He is the light of the world. The light or those lamps um, in verse 2, interestingly, we have this transition from singular to plural. I'm going to walk through this because I think it's kind of a neat point. So look at verse 2 real carefully. It says, Command the children of Israel that bring to you the pure oil of pressed olives for the light, singular, to make the lamps burn continually. So for some reason, it goes from the light to the lamps. Now there is a lampstand and there is, remember it was, it looked like a vine and there were branches that went off the vine and there were multiple little lamps on top of this big singular lamp. And that's reflected in that sentence. Um, but it's not, um, it's not necessarily inaccurate either because of that. We use the same kind of language. When we say there's a light, there's a one light that we're talking about, but there's actually multiple rays of light that come out of that light source. 
In fact, there's different colors of light that come out of a typical light that we would call white. And that actually has a rainbow of colors that's built into it. So there are multiple rays of light on different wavelengths, even with one light. So this is important in the New Testament because it's the framework that Jesus sets up to talk about him as the light and his people or his followers as little lights. But it's all the same light source, right? So Jesus speaks, uh, then, then spake Jesus again to them. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I'm the light of the world and that he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So when darkness comes, there's always Jesus, and we can always look to Jesus to see the light. And he's probably comparing that, or his Jewish disciples would have seen that as the light of the tabernacle. So Christ's light shines out, and it shines out through multiple people. And multiple people emit light so that they can see the singular Christ. So as Christians are all over the earth shining lights, we're all pointing to the light of Christ and that it shines through multiple lamps. Matthew 5, 14, you, plural, you, the people of God, are the light of the world, and a city that is set on a hill cannot be, set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel. They put it on a candlestick, and it gives light unto everyone in the house. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your lights, plural, shine so that they can see the, your good works, plural, and glorify your Father, singular, which is in heaven. It goes from singular to plural, plural to singular. And that's the way in which God shows us that through a literal tabernacle and the treatment of this lampstand. He shows us a major concept of the faith and how God's going to light the people that serve him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Do you see it? Singular to plural. In Revelation, each of those lampstands represent one of the seven churches. And the vine and the branches, Christ is the vine, we are the branches, gives the task of Christians to be lighting the world. So as a Revelation talks to the seven churches, some of them are doing a good job, some of them have lost their first love, um, some of them are not doing a good job and they're apostate. And God talks about the churches in all these ways, but Christ stays the same and pure and, and holy even if his people are falling away or hiding their light under a bushel. You have a light, you follow Christ, he's given you all the tools you need, the same tools that Paul and Peter got, the same tools that Erasmus got, the same tools that Martin Luther had, the same tools that Billy Graham has, Every Christian has them. The Holy Spirit is the light that's in you, and you are to shine that out before the world, and God will use you too, just like he used those people. And then he gets to the bread. There's this image of bread that we come back to. Verse 5, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephath shall be each cake. <laughs> and you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on pure gold tables before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense in each row that it may be on the bread for a memorial and offering made, be, be, made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for the Aaron and his sons that they shall eat in a holy place for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. So every Sabbath, verse 8, 
they're going to replace the bread inside this middle room. Holy of Holies where God sits, the altar of atonement where God's people come before God, and in the middle is the lampstand and the table with the bread on it. So we're talking about that table. And there's a lot of bread on this table. And this is the people's job. Again, the you in verse 5 that they're talking about is the people of Israel. The children of Israel need to be responsible for bringing the supplies for this. So where the priests might bake this bread, the people have to literally raise the crops, grow the crops. This fine flour would have had to be sifted and gone through grain by grain almost because they wanted perfect flour. They had to harvest that flour, mill it, sort it out, and then 12 cakes, right? Two-tenths of an ephath is like three and a half pounds of flour for each loaf. These are massive loaves, no leaven, so they would have been big old pizza-like things. Later on, the Jewish people shrink that to cracker size. That's pathetic. There should be abundance here. Jewish people just, but three and a half pounds of flour. And for anybody that bakes, that's a lot of bread. And this would have been the best flour they had. And they're doing it every single week to put on a table that most people will never see. So they put their work and invest things that are going to build up in the kingdom of heaven or in the tabernacle. So in the same way, we as Christians are asked to do things so that we accumulate crowns in heaven that we can't see in this life, that we're doing things for God that do have this benefit. So one, uh, I'll point this out too because I like food. At the end of verse five, it says cake. It doesn't necessarily say bread. The Hebrews have a word for bread. This isn't that word. The word is cake. And by definition, um, the appropriate mezonat or blessing in the Jewish tradition is that if it's a cake, it means that the majority of the liquid ingredients is not water. So in bread, you can use water as a liquid ingredient and in cakes, you don't. You use eggs, oil, juice, honey, or liquefied sugar. In other words, it's cake. It's the actual cake that you want to eat. There's just no leaven in it. So it's tasty cake. So And so if you add all these up, all these loaves, that'd be 40 pounds of cake stuck on this table. There wouldn't have been room on a one foot by three foot table to fit this bread. They would have had to pile it and stack it up. And that's why they say in two piles or in two rows. I know I get so excited about bread. So six in a row, but this would have been heaped on God's table. So you give these things to God and then look what God does with all this stuff that the people bring to him because frankly, God doesn't need bread. He gives it to his priesthood and they get to eat from it. It's going to be for Aaron and his sons. It's going to sit on this table and be an honor to me, but I don't need the bread. I'm going to just give it to the priests and they get to eat it in that holy place. And it's for them to do whatever they please with it. That's an important point. So they don't get a tiny bit of bread. They get this overflowing bread from God, this bread of life that they're going to have. And then there's going to be pure frankincense in verse 7, right? Pure frankincense on each row. Now, we don't know if they put that in a vial and just set it on top of the bread or if they poured this stuff over the bread um, or they put it to the side. But frankincense is an incense. So it's not really edible. So it's likely they had it in a little container and they put it by the bread to sit together. And instead of ruining the bread, they would burn the incense out on in the altar and the bread would go to Aaron's children's. So the incense is what get made, is made into an offering, but only after it's sat with the bread and be, kind of become one with the bread. It represents the bread that's going to get burned up. That is a sweet incense. It's not only sweet for God, it's sweet to whoever is by the tabernacle 
when this stuff gets burnt. Um, and it happens there. So the bread going to the priests, because God gives that to them. They don't have to work for it. God just gives it. And the priests can get it, but they can give it to other people too. And that we see this in 1 Samuel 21, when David goes into Ahimelech and, and needs bread to feed his soldiers. Um, and it's okay for Ahimelech to give David that bread, but David can't take it, which is why David asks for it. Um, and Ahimelech does give it, and David feeds his disciples, and that was not a breach of the law. The only thing that had to happen is that David had to bring his men in to the tabernacle area, and they had to eat in the presence of God. Um, so there's a little accountability there. Matthew 12, Mark 2, Luke 6. Jesus pulls that story out with David, and he points it out to the Pharisees because he and his disciples were plucking corn so they could eat on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees got all upset about that. And this is the story Jesus brings up. I'll give you the Mark 2 version, verse 26. And he went into the house of God, David, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful to eat, but for the priests. And he gave it to them, which were with them. Um, they shall eat it means God provides the bread, but he's going to hand it off because um, God provides the bread of life. This is a big deal. God doesn't need it. God doesn't need the, the rituals, but man needs the rituals. We need the images and we need the symbolism. Literally, the showbread that they're using there is that this was the face bread because it was put in the face of God and then it was consumed by the priests. So the showbread or the face bread was God's to have and he gave it to his priests. And there was a lot of it. So it could feed a small army, right? There's enough bread there to split up and spread around. So, and it would have been made with the good stuff. It was actually tasty and had some sugars in it and some eggs and some olive oil and we should make this bread and eat it. Jesus then, one of his primary miracles, he actually does it multiple times, is he makes bread for people. I'd like to imagine that the bread that got made looked a lot like this kind of bread because that would have angered the Pharisees and it would have made all the people very happy. But if Jesus is our high priest, he can give his bread to whoever he wants to because that's the law just like Ahimelech gave his bread out. And that's why Jesus liked that passage. And Jesus says to his disciples about the creation of the feeding the 5,000 people. So the bread of God is abundant. It's overflowing. There's plenty of bread for armies of people to eat. And Jesus says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven. He gave you fake bread that was representative of the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. This sounds like good bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So Jews come to think of this bread as more than just an image of God's provision for them. And that's the mistake that they make when Jesus comes. They forget that it's just an image of what was to come. The Jews therefore quarreled amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They don't get it. Jesus, it was an image to start with with Moses, and it's still an image of what Jesus was trying to explain to them. So we're supposed to feast on Jesus, worship Jesus. We're not supposed to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When we feast on the Lord, we read his word. We study what he had to say. We see where he connects to the Old Testament because this is a serious business, hearing what God has to say in our life. But if we do it, the promise is we're never hungry. We're filled with it. 
And I don't know if some of you noticed this, but after about six months of doing weekly Bible study, it does feed you in a really weird spiritual way. Like suddenly you're just a happier person. When other people are anxious, you're not. And when other people are struggling, you have the right words to say to give them peace and joy. Uh, and suddenly the right passages start to come to mind to witness to people and share your faith with people. There's something about feasting on Jesus's words, on the words of the Bible that help us to do this. And we should be doing this as an eternal sacrament. We should be feasting in, 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 on God's word all the time. So they do this every Sabbath, every Sunday. Christians do the same thing. Every Sabbath and every Sunday we read God's word and we do it together as an assembly because that bread is part of what we need to survive. So in the same way, I'm going to finish up this chapter in the same way in Leviticus nine and 10, you had a little historical narrative where Nadab and Abihu added to what God told them to do when they were killed. You had this little story. We're going to get a little story here at the end of this chapter too, almost like bookends on either ends of the book. And there is a, a son of an Israelite woman, verse 10, whose father was an Egyptian and went out amongst the people. So this is another cautionary tale, a lot like Nadab and Abihu. And they went out amongst the children of Israel, and this Israelite's woman's son and a man fought each other in the camp. So notice the guilty man is never called a Jewish person. <laughs> he would have been part of the mixed multitude from Exodus 12:38 that came out of Egypt. His father, and they make a point of this, his father is Egyptian and his mom's Israelite. So in this culture, in this era, your nationality came from your father. So they make a, a point of saying that the Israelite woman's son, but they don't say that the son's not accountable, he must be young, blasphemes the name of the Lord and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shemalith, or Shalomith and the daughter of Debri on the tribe of Dan. So they give the whole lineage here. The word blasphemed is kind of interesting. And, and remember, this isn't an accident. This story is here. So we just heard about the light of God and the bread of God. And here's somebody that wants to poke holes in that. And literally the word blaspheme, this gets thrown a lot around a lot since the Spanish Inquisition as blasphemers. And it's something that really hyper-religious people yell out when they're angry with somebody. In context, when it gets used here in Leviticus, it means to pierce or to poke a hole into something. The word blasphemed is to bore into something. So this son was boring into the name of the Lord, was poking a hole in the name of the Lord, is piercing something of God's, almost like God gets pierced in the right side. He strikes through the law, the word, the book, as though God's not in charge. And I was really convicted by this because we see a lot of this. He reads God's, God's word. It is what it is. It's been there for thousands of years. And we as humans, you know, I've been around for 40 years and I read the word. And one of the first instincts we have, which is sad because we just had a feast of trumpets and we just had food and we just had abundant bread on the table and the light of the God leading us on a path towards heaven. We have all these gifts from God and the human tendency immediately following it is to poke holes in that. Well, I like everything you got, but this spot right here, I'm going to poke a hole in that. This one thing I have an issue with, and I'm not quite content with how you do this, God. If God isn't in charge, the assumption is that this son of the Egyptian Israelite woman is in charge. 
that they're going to blaspheme God is they're going to poke holes in the name of God, the unspeakable holy name of God. They're going to pick a fight with that. Really? So the name here, the name of the Lord, um, is actually written out the name in the Hebrew because Yahweh never gets written out. Yahweh, Jehovah are different ways to pronounce Y-H-V-H, which throughout the Old Testament, Jews didn't write the name of God because it was too holy. It was too sacred. So this person's going to say, not only is God not that holy, but I'm going to take issue with one or two things. So the name of the person is associated with the character of the person. So to blaspheme God is to poke holes in the character and the name of God. And it's tied together. And that character name association has been around since Genesis. But notice that the, that's not the, the only thing they did was blaspheme or poke holes in God. It also says, and cursed. So in Exodus 27, to curse is to use God's name in vain. It's against the commandments. So not only is he poking hole in God's name, he's going to take it for granted and use it in vain. So Egyptians would do this a lot. And the Greeks do this and the Romans do this. If I'm mad at a God, I as a human can curse that God. And I can say, curse you, Zeus. I'm going to go follow Apollo. Or I don't like what Neptune's saying, so I'm going to go follow Saturn. And that was the part of, polytheism, part of polytheism as you as a human somehow gave something to that God when you worship them, like the gods need you. And Judaism, unique in all worldly religions, except for maybe Christianity, is that God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need our worship. God is fulfilled and whole. He is here to love and care for us because we need him. That's a huge difference. So this guy's acting like an Egyptian. When he curses Yahweh, he's basically assuming that A, he's at the same level of God and can start to argue with God, or B, he's, at the, he's able to choose a God and that God somehow needs him, which is to use God's name in vain and to curse him. We still do this today. We still have people that can hear all of God's law, all of God's image and, and, and loving concern for his people and a pathway for our lives, and then we poke holes in it. And say, well, I'll take all your blessings, God, but I don't like your moral code. I like this, this, and this, but I'm not going to do this. Well, that's somehow putting yourself at God's level. And if you don't like it, then you get all mad and you pout and you walk away from God's kingdom because you don't like one or two laws that he has. God's too harsh. He's too restrictive. And you forget the trumpets and the blessing and the path to God and the bread of life and the living water. And you forget these gifts that come with God's law. Well, it's all one package. You don't get to poke holes in it. So, likely this guy wanted to hold on to some sin that he had, and he didn't like that most of us were saying he couldn't do it anymore. That's probably what's going on. And he defies, and he walks around camp, and he's spreading garbage about stuff. He's taking his weird ideas and spreading them around, and he is leaven in the camp. And that kind of sour attitude and sour person, well, the people kind of bring him. They're all kind of in this revival mode. And they say, here's a guy that rejects what you're saying. And they put him in front of Moses. Then verse 12, they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. This is interesting. Again, there's balance. This isn't an angry mob running out and burning the witch. And that's the image that the world loves to give of Christians. And that's not what's going on here. They put him in custody so that they could pray and listen for what God wants to do with the person. So they wait. They're not reactive. 
They're not emotional. It's not a rage thing. This guy has time to repent if he wants to. And the Lord spoke to Moses. So at some point, the Lord says, okay, I'm ready to talk to you now. And he says, take outside the camp him who has cursed and let all who hear him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him. Some interesting things here. The primary piece, the first thing is get this guy out of your camp, like the camp of Israel. Don't let him dwell amongst your people. And notice it says, him who has cursed. It's the cursing of God that breaks the commandment. The blaspheming of God is this guy just being disrespectful. But God's a little bigger than that. He doesn't even mention it. You can poke holes in my law. My law remains the same. So a human's attempt to poke holes in God doesn't actually do anything. doesn't puncture God um, because he's God and he is not us. So they haul him outside. I'll, let me read 15 and 16 first. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, whoever curses God shall bear his sin. It's on you if you want to curse God. And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Is a really, the nation has to bear witness to the sin. And they like when they do a sacrifice and put their son, their sin on the animal. They actually have to bring their witness. Talk about facing your accusers. They're going to get close enough to put their hand on his head saying, I heard you do this. So no one can be convicted unless people step forward saying, I saw it happen myself. And then they own it and they, they, they acknowledge that they were there. Perhaps this explains all those self-righteous people that wanted to stone the harlot, right? And Jesus says, those of you without sin, let them be the first to cast a stone. Nobody gets to be stoned unless people will make an accusation saying, I saw this happen. And if you saw two people having sex with one another, that kind of makes you guilty. Um, so God, Jesus kind of had them there, if that's the case. So they get to face their accusers. They do it intimately. They lay their hands on his head and been seeking out the mind of the Lord. This is done after some prayer and some time. And if they continue to stay in their cursing and in their blasphemy, they get put to death. This is God's word. You'd say God's word never changes. How come we still don't stone people? Why don't we do this anymore? In part because there was nowhere to send this person outside of Israel because it was a nation. So you literally had to ostracize them from the country if you weren't going to stone them. So if they're going to run around and defy God and poke holes in his name, you don't want that kind of person in your congregation or in your fellowship anymore. So killing them in the Bible is not the worst thing that can happen. The worst thing that can happen is that they go to hell. And if they're killed, they simply go to God. So this was a, a perspective that they had that even though our human legal code changes, God doesn't necessarily change. And he promises that anyone who blasphemes his name or curses in his name is going to die for that. And that hasn't changed. Jesus said the same thing. We're all going to die for our sins unless Jesus atones for us. So in this case, God didn't want that leaven to continue to infect the country. They were going to kill them now as opposed to waiting for judgment day. So when it says all the congregation, I think we should be aware too. This meant at this particular period in history, roughly 2 million people had to be there for the stoning. And it says all the congregation. It doesn't say representatives or elders of the congregation. So they had to gather together, perhaps at one of the three feasts, 
and they would take care of people like this. But they did it as a country, and they did it um, publicly. So it kind of brings new light to say, if you have a problem with somebody, you go to one, go to them one-on-one. -on -one. If that doesn't work, you bring another person and you go to them. If that doesn't work, you go to the whole congregation. Remember, Matthew kind of outlined this kind of conflict resolution style. But if people are going to hold to their blasphemy, if they're going to hold to their cursing of God, there's a point where you say, we need you outside the congregation. We got to get you away from the city. So the New Testament trusts that God will judge and people will die on judgment day. And the New Testament church does not practice stoning because it is perfectly possible to kick someone out of your congregation without them having to be killed where it wasn't possible in the Old Testament in Israel. They just didn't have the transportation, right? So you killed people and put them in God's hands. But with the church, you could kick people out of your congregation and that was the punishment and you didn't have to stone them to do it. But the process stayed the same. You gathered the entire congregation. Everyone's there to witness it. So we're all on the same page. What this guy is saying, what this girl is saying is against God's law. It's not in practice with what we're trying to do as a congregation. And they're not going to repent of it. They're not going to submit to God's law in this respect. So this isn't the church for you. This isn't the congregation for you. And sometimes in the church that has to happen. So after Leviticus lays out the whole plan, hey, if you still got people that aren't on board with it, they don't need to be part of Israel anymore. So whoever, not only that, they could just leave Israel too if they want to, but they're not. This guy's running around trying to convince people not to follow God. So he's making a willful choice and they're sitting around while people wait on God's word through prayer. So in all this time, they're refusing to repent and they're refusing to leave. Um, and they're making these choices to try to intentionally infect God's people. And God says, here's what you're going to do. Verse 17, whoever kills any man should be put to death. So here's another instance where if they're going to go around murdering people, you're going to kill these people too. Whoever kills an animal should make it good animal for animal. So apparently humans are more important than animals. Animals can be replaced. Humans can't. So you don't get to kill people. Another one of the Ten Commandments. Verse 19, if a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor... As he has done, it shall be done to him too. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. He's caused a disfigurement of a man, it shall be done to him. So there's a principle here in context that the punishment has to fit the crime. We're not going to get extreme with our punishments. We're not going to torture people. But what people think that they have the ability to do to God, there's a consequence for that. If you're going to do things to other humans, there's a matching consequence for that. If you're going to do things for, for to animals or people's property, you're going to make that right too. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. Whatever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I'm the Lord your God. It doesn't matter if you're Hebrew or if you're just a, a resident of this country. The law stays true for the whole country. Ignorance of the law is no excuse for the law. We still say that in the United States. But this is just Old Testament stuff, and it's not New Testament, but it's actually, I think, translates really well. God isn't saying, go find strangers and kill them. He isn't saying that. In fact, the implication here is that a stranger can live in the country and obey the law and be perfectly okay to live in Israel. And that's still true today. But if you're still sinning and you're intentionally going around being a source of chaos for this country and a plague for this country, the country doesn't isn't obliged to keep you around anymore, right? So God doesn't say, go run off to Egypt and protest their sin. 
He actually says, I'll take care of the Canaanites and you don't have to worry about it. He's not calling believers to go stone people, right? God owns the responsibility for it. And anytime a civic organization has to stone people, he wants the entire nation, the whole assembly, the whole congregation to be there and be okay with it. So this isn't a light thing. It's not an easy thing, but Paul essentially says the exact same thing. And Paul uses this law to talk about church governance. There's no difference here. Life is to be inside the congregation and in fellowship with God. Death is to be outside the congregation and not in fellowship with God. So the administration of it stays the same. You either kick them out of the church with Paul or you stone them in the Old Testament. But the the idea, the principle is the same. There are some people you just don't keep around because they're going to purposefully contest God's law. Listen to how this works. The same as for the stranger is from one for your country. Same as true for Gentiles or Jews in the church. 1 Corinthians 5.4 In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, he gathers them together, along with my spirit, they pray and seek out God's counsel, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. This is the spirit, that that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's better for that person to die for their soul because they could maybe be saved in the day of the Lord than to continue to blaspheme God's name. Your glorying in sin is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In your church, when you become okay with people living in defiance of God, it's going to ruin your church and your testimony. That kind of defiance is infectious and it ruins the church. So to be okay with sin is not okay. And it's not okay in the Old Testament. It's not okay in the New Testament. You reject sin, you accept God, and you're welcome to be in the body. doesn't matter where you came from, stranger or, or Hebrew. You accept, you accept sin and you reject God and you're supposed to put them out of the body. It's a very simple principle. And you keep fishing for people that are willing to submit to God and live according to his law. Paul continues to say, But now I've written to you, don't keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, covetous, an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or extortioner, not even eating with such people. You don't fellowship with people that are actively living outside of God's will. And and, and again, the conditional statement there is anyone named a brother. If they're calling themselves a Christian and they're living in sin outside of God's law, we're not even supposed to have dinner with them, right? So you're supposed to separate. Now, Paul doesn't say go protest all the Romans and tell them they're sinners. He says for a brother, someone who's in the church and calling themselves a Christian. So you got the bread of life, you got the lampstand of God, you got the light there, and we don't judge people. Oh, but Paul continues to just say that. I don't need to give commentary. He just says it. For what do I have to do with judging people outside the church? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those, or do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges them. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So it's not the Christian's job to worry about non-Christians and their sin. That's God's job. Our job is to worry about our own fellowship and our own congregation and our own people. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and they stoned him with stones. Two million stones at the same time is instant death, right? That's quick, fast. So if they're all throwing a stone, they had to find a very big area to do this, and they ended this person. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses, 
and they did this. They start out as distasteful as stoning is. It's part of running the nation of Israel, and it's part of what they do. And Leviticus lays it out in these rare circumstances where that happens. This is how you do it. So that said, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for Leviticus. Some of it's hard to swallow, Lord, but I don't want to poke holes in it. I just want to teach it so that everyone in this Zoom cast can hear and understand what the chapter says and that we understand it fully and we understand it accurately. Lord, beyond that, I pray that your spirit works on all of us. There's parts of this that I struggle with. There's parts of this that everyone struggles with because, Lord, your law is difficult and it shows us that we are doomed um, because when we, when we disagree with it, the consequence is death. Um, and Lord, we know that we are all have that coming to us because at some point or another, we've either broken your law or we poke holes in it. And we think we know better than you and we put ourselves as an equal to you. Uh, and Lord, we are not meant to do that. And we afflict our souls with that thought. Lord, we pray for your atonement and your covering for our sins. Help us to repent, to redeem our time, and to live for you. Lord, thank you for your fellow, the, the, the feasts of autumn. Thank you that your trumpet will blow. Thank you that we will know and face the throne of judgment, Lord, that we can celebrate because we know that you saved us. And Lord, we just thank you for that. We thank you for the gift that you have worked through history. We thank you, Lord, that some of the feasts have been fulfilled. Some of the prophecies have come true. So we don't even really have to take it on faith. We just have to know, Lord, that you will keep your promises that you've made. Um, and Lord, we appreciate that it takes so little faith to believe because you've fulfilled so many of your promises. So many of your prophecies have already come true uh, and you've promised and will keep the rest. Thank you for that. Thank you for this evening. Thank you for your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, Post it on your social media.